I think the future is licensing of data. Again, Twitter shut off their APIs. Reddit's, you know, been trying to avoid people scraping things. Uh, New York Times done doing a deal with OpenAI. I think what you're going to see is all the major data brokers. And if we think of data as content, images, mm. um, text, video, that is the asset. And so licensing that to these companies that are building these models will solve this issue in the future. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 56 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. We are both in Maycon week mode. We managed to still show up Monday morning, <laughs> July 24th to record this. So it's dropping Tuesday, July 25th. And Maycon is in Cleveland, July 26th to the 28th. We have a busy week ahead of us. I know you're teaching an applied AI workshop, right? That's how you start mm -hmm. off on Wednesday with that. I've got the yes, strategic sir. AI leader workshop. Um, what's your, what's your talk? What, what did the final title? End up uh, 45 AI tools in 45 minutes. So That's it's, aggressive. Uh, it's very aggressive. We've <laughs> done versions of this talk a couple of times, but this is easily the most tools in the same amount of time. So I'm going to have to practice talking much faster. There's no upfront storytelling. Do. There's no, 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 context. no time. Just, yeah. <laughs> we are just hardcore going at 45 apps. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so we're we're pumped. It's uh, I think we're approaching 700 attendees. It looks like we're going to hit 700 here in the next day or two. Uh, so yeah, just an incredible response, incredible um, support for the event. Can't wait for it. So we'll have uh, next week's episode. We'll show back up again. Good <laughs> day off of our Maycon hangover, probably. <laughs> um, just show up on Monday, and we'll we'll talk about some of the amazing stuff we learned or or heard at Maycon, but. Hopefully a lot of you listening are going to be there. We'd love to, you know, meet the audience in person. It's always great to connect with people who listen to the show. So yeah, that's what's going on. And, and so we got a lot to do. So let's go ahead and jump into this episode so we can uh, get back to Macon stuff. All right. This episode is brought to us by Jasper, the generative AI platform that is transforming marketing content creation for teams and businesses. Unlike other AI solutions, Jasper leverages the best cross-section of models and can be trained on your brand voice for, gener or for greater reliability and brand control. With features like brand voice and campaigns, it offers efficiency with consistency. That's critical to maintaining a cohesive brand. Jasper has won the trust of more than 100,000 customers, including Canva, Intel, DocuSign, CB Insights, and Sports Illustrated. Jasper works anywhere with extensions, integrations, and APIs that enable on-brand content acceleration on the go. Sign up free or book a custom demo with an AI expert at jasper.ai. All right, Mike, let's do it. We got a bunch of stuff to cover. We got our three topics, and then we got a lot of rapid fire, and it's even Monday morning. We've had to add like three <laughs> rapid fire items this morning, and it's only 9.50 a.m. on Eastern time. So yeah, it seems roll. to be a trend here. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. First up, 
So Meta just dropped a bombshell with pretty big implications for the world of AI. The company announced that its new powerful large language model, something called Llama 2, will be available free of charge for research and for commercial use. So what this means is that the model is what we would call open source, which means anyone can copy it, build on top of it, remix it, and use it however they see fit. Now, one reason this is so important is it puts an extremely powerful large language model right into anyone's hands and gives them the appropriate permissions to build commercial products with it. Now, another reason this matters is it actually signals a major strategic direction that Meta is taking here in order to compete with some of the other AI companies out there. And this direction could have some effect on AI safety. That's because, you know, some major AI players in this space place serious restrictions on the use and release of their models. And that's often at least partially due to concerns about how models could be misused if they're put in the wrong hands without guardrails. Meta is taking the exact opposite approach. They believe that by getting this technology out there into the world, into anyone and everyone's hands, will actually make the technology better in a much faster cadence. And it will more quickly help Meta reveal and address issues that contribute to safety, like using the model, say, to produce misinformation or toxic content. Um, so as we look at this topic, Paul, like how big a deal is this? Yeah, I mean, it definitely shakes up the whole industry. Uh, from an open source perspective, the general uh, feedback I've seen is it is the most advanced open source model mm -hmm. overall. So Falcon 40, I think, was you know maybe the most powerful one. But it seems as though Llama 2 is on par with uh, GPT 3.5 and in some cases maybe even GPT 4 in terms of its capabilities and uh, testing. So that's a huge deal. And then the thing that you know, really was surprising to me was that they came to market with Microsoft. Yeah. So the fact that they announced this through a partnership with Microsoft, it was almost a joint announcement. I just thought that was really interesting. Like at first I stepped back, I'm like, okay, what did I miss here? Like, how did I not like see this one coming or, or, or was there nothing to see? Like they, they just kind of came out of nowhere and did this. But I think what caught me off guard was just because of Microsoft's obviously deep relationship with OpenAI mm. and everything being powered by GTP3 and GPT4, that they would also make a major bet in the open source space and do it with Meta. Like, I, I don't know, it just, it was kind of out of nowhere to me. So I thought that was interesting, but it obviously adds immediate legitimacy to what they're doing. Mm. We've talked about on the show many times that Meta is a sleeper in all of this. Like everyone, you know, pays so much attention to Google and DeepMind within Google and Microsoft and OpenAI and AWS is, you know, beginning the conversation. And Meta, you know, outside of maybe Google and um, and OpenAI has probably the most advanced AI research lab in the world. And mm. and so the fact that they're doing stuff like this is a huge deal. And putting the power of open source, like an advanced open source model into the wild, it, it, I mean, it's a game changing thing. I don't, I usually, I'm not a fan of like the whole game changing <laughs> nomenclature for everything, but this one feels very significant. And I think even in the first week, you've seen just massive amounts of innovation being built on top of this model. So yeah, it just seems like it's a prelude for a lot of innovation to come based on this. 
What did you make of these kind of competing approaches to AI safety? So on this one hand, we've got some major people thinking that safety comes from, you know, careful, controlled building and release of AI technology. Others like Meta are truly just saying we will get it out as fast and as far as possible, believing that transparency and usage are some of the best guardrails against how AI models can go wrong. Do you have any kind of read there on which approach makes the most sense, uh, what the merits are of each one? I hope they're right. I, I mean, <laughs> we've talked about the closed versus open source before. Honestly, like the open source ideas terrify me. Like yeah. I, I really think that when we look at what can go wrong with AI, I feel like open source accelerates that dramatically. Like we're going to find out way faster what can go wrong with AI because the bad actors have access to the same powerful tools as the good guys. And so I find that scary, honestly. Um, I don't know which is the better approach. I can sit and listen to debates on this all day about, you know, who's right in this scenario. I feel like open AI, you know, was obviously the open approach and they very clearly changed their direction and they've been very straightforward in why they changed their direction and they seem extremely confident it's the right play mm. but i feel like there's no turning back the open source is going to be a part of this ecosystem we don't get that choice now it, it's only going to become more advanced and people are going to build capabilities on top of these foundational models that are now out in the wild so it's it's kind of a debate that just doesn't matter like it, it's already out there we now get to find out if it was good or bad. And like I said, I think it's it the open source, the availability of these advanced models, open source is going to accelerate innovation in a good way. So all the positives that can come from AI are going to come faster and it's going to accelerate them in a bad way. And I think we're going to be hit with some crazy stuff in the second half of this year um, in terms of how these things are used that, you know, present risk to security and privacy and all kinds of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like, we're going to find out. It's out there. There's no change in the, the direction now. We're doing an experiment in real time, basically. Yeah, on humanity, basically. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, boy. So it does beg the question, you know, this is obviously important. Um, open source models appear to be coming, becoming more prevalent. Um, what does your average marketing or business leader need to be thinking about here, if anything? This is something I'm very intrigued by, and I also don't know the answers yet. I don't think anybody really does, is if you're a CMO or a CIO or CTO or whatever, whatever it is, and you're going to be charged with figuring out how to infuse large language models into your marketing, sales, service, ops, HR, every aspect of the business is going to have language models at the foundation of them. What, what do you build on? And so you can go to someone like Jasper, you know, sponsor the show and they, they kind of, you know, a symphony of language models based on the use case and you can customize them based on brand tone and style and policies and all these things. So that's one solution is just, you go to an application company that's kind of the best of these models and helping you figure this out for you, or you go and get an open source model and you customize it on your own data. You keep everything in house, nothing leaves, you know, the, the guarded walls or text, you know, confidential information, privacy. I don't, I don't know. Like I, 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 and I haven't yet seen anything definitive that clearly states this. I know we're going to talk later on about Cohere teaming up with McKinsey. Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to start to see this where a lot of organizations are going to turn to their trusted advisors and consultants say, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those, the, the middle companies like the McKinsey's 
are going to have to try and make some bets. But again, just look at Microsoft and the fact that they have OpenAI at the core of everything, building it into their own uh, technology, and yet they're doing a deal with Meta. Mm -hmm. So they're playing both sides. Like it, it, and even you know Amazon's the same way. You can go get Amazon's what was it Titan or Bedrock or whatever their mm -hmm. language model is, but you can also get Anthropic and Cohere and like all well, these other ones. So it just feels to me right now like no one actually knows whether open or closed is going to be best within an enterprise. And the reality is it may be a mix of them. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I think that's the thing though, as a marketer, as a business leader, I'd be really thinking about here is what do we do? How do, mm -hmm. how do we build language models into our organization moving forward? Who do we work with? Gotcha. Yeah. And that's, we did mention, I believe on last week's episode, the importance of marketers, both individually and at the leadership level, testing multiple tools, models, yeah. and platforms as much as possible, even though it is a bit messy and a bit of a lift, you have to be looking at different models relatively regularly for a handful of your core use cases because of how quickly they move in advance and open source just supercharges that. Yeah. And I think that brings out an interesting point about how quickly these things evolve and how you know one can leapfrog the other so so quick but also mm -hmm. that this is not traditional software this isn't like you know version 5 remembers everything version 4 had and they just like make it way better and add a bunch of features when you make version 5 you're basically rebuilding from the ground up everything like it doesn't remember all it did that's why they have to train these things that's why they have to stop the training data at a certain time period they have to then red team the thing make sure it's safe make sure it's aligned make sure it has the proper guardrails so it's it's just not like like if you pick a model today mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem conceivable that you can just assume for the next three to five years you're good and like whatever they bring out next works because often at times what happens and we'll talk about this in a later topic is Changes can be made and all of a sudden it just doesn't work as well as it did. And mm -hmm. the reality, again, we'll touch on this in a minute, is they don't know why. Like they can't just go in into the code like you would in traditional software and be like, oh, there's the bug mm -hmm. and fix the bug. You have to try and like analyze these things in some cases, like philosophically, what could it possibly be doing different based on something that changed? Is it the training data? Is it a change we made? Is it a guardrail we put in place that had downstream effects we didn't expect? These things are, they're unknown how they really work. And so it's just not, there's no like very clear, here's the blueprint, here's how you pick a language model and like go. I don't, and I don't even expect those to emerge. Like I don't mm -hmm. know that there can be a definitive source on how to do this in an enterprise. And I think that's why it's going to be such a unknown and critical area for businesses moving forward is like, this is the wild west right now. Mm. A really good point. Okay, so for our second topic Speaking of the Wild West, yes, <laughs> this story is quickly evolving because a major piece of it happened the morning that we are recording this podcast, Monday, July 24th, I believe. Um, Elon Musk is making waves with only a single letter. That letter is X. As of the morning we are recording, Twitter has been formally rebranded as X. Um, the platform formerly known as Twitter doesn't seem to have changed much right now aside from the logo, but it does seem like Musk and leadership are now viewing this as 
just one piece of a much larger entity, this entity they are calling X. And in a somewhat cryptic set of tweets, CEO Linda Yaccarino said that, quote, X is the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in audio video messaging payments slash banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. Powered by AI, X will connect us all in ways we're just beginning to imagine. Um, in the past couple of weeks as well, Musk has also announced an entity called XAI, his new company dedicated to building what he calls good artificial general intelligence and designed to compete with OpenAI, among others. So there's a lot going on X-related, and it's moving fast, and I'm not sure how much anyone is actually saying. But Paul, first off, let me just like express what might be on the minds of a lot of listeners as of this morning and uh, in the morning tomorrow when this podcast drops, which is what the hell is going on at Twitter? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, if anyone follows Elon you know, welcome to the show. This is, <laughs> this is how things work. Um, he, he went on like a, a tweet binge, like Friday night into Saturday morning. I'm not sure he slept Friday mm. night because he was tweeting at like 3am still. Um, and at one point I think he tweeted, cause I was watching some of this before I went to bed Friday night and he tweeted, like, if someone posts a great X logo tonight, like we'll use it. And so I think they actually crowdsourced the X logo on Twitter, hmm. like Friday night. And ironically, it seems like maybe it's actually something based on some code, like someone just like took and threw up and he liked it. Hmm. But I don't even think they're gonna be able to trademark the thing because it's actually just like generated by some computational code. It creates this the X that he's using now. Um, but who, you know, who cares about copyright <laughs> and trademarks when you're running, you know, the businesses he's running. So yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of people are going to sign on to Twitter this morning who don't follow Twitter closely or Elon Musk closely, and they're just going to have that reaction like, what in the hell is this? Like, what is what is the X? Where'd the bird go? Mm. And they're not going to have a clue. Like, you're, good luck trying to understand what they're doing, because I don't think they know what they're doing, honestly. Like, if you read the CEO's quote, Linda's quote, and, mm. and you have to go look at the tweet. As someone who came from a communications PR background, I ran an agency, so we did for a living. Um, this to me feels like, I mean, I know Linda's the CEO, but I, I, she's obviously still taking direction from Elon. It feels mm. like Friday night at midnight, <laughs> he messaged her and said, we're changing the name to X tomorrow. Can you tweet something? Like that, that's how this reads hmm. because it's like, literally you, you read the, the one line, um, but it starts with this, an exceptionally rare thing in life or in business that you get a second chance to make a, another big impression. Twitter made one massive impression and changed the way we communicate. Now X will go further, transforming the global town square. And then it just goes on for like, for years, fans and critics alike have pushed Twitter to dream bigger, to innovate faster, and fulfill our great potential. It sounds like ChatGPT wrote this. Hmm. X will do that and more. We've already started to see X take shape over the last eight months. But the part about like that you read about, we're just beginning to imagine. In other words, we actually don't know like what it's going to be. My take on it is twofold. One, he's always wanted X.com. That mm. he created that company in 1999. He's obsessed with X.com. He always has been. The guy doing his biography, Walter Isaacson, who you and I have both read books from him, mm -hmm. um, actually broke it down in, in a tweet about 
how going back to 1999, this was the company created, he actually tried to change the name of PayPal to X.com and got overruled. So he is literally obsessed with this idea of X.com being like the everything app. Mm -hmm. um, and back in the day, it was all about like online payments and banking and things like that. So that that is a thing. <laughs> and And the other part is like, I think, and this is just total thinking out loud here, Twitter's value is rumored to have gone from the 44 billion he bought it for down to 5 billion. Mm. So as an asset, he has just tanked the thing he spent all this money on. If you make it something much bigger, it's like a startup. Mm -hmm. And now it's whatever value someone is willing to give you for it. So if Twitter is no longer just a social network that's getting run into the ground, and it is actually this X.com, whatever you can imagine, banking and goods and services and whatever, now you can be like, oh, and it's worth like $200 billion. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you've inflated an asset, which he's been known to do at times with different companies. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it is just his lifelong mission to turn X.com into something. I think when he tried to get out of the Twitter deal and couldn't, he basically said, all right, fine, we'll just make it X.com then. <laughs> and then that can, so this, again, if, if you don't pay attention to Elon and you don't know his history and you don't know the history of Twitter, all of this is all of a sudden like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. What there's actually like 24 years of history behind this idea. And then when you go back to the Twitter deal, when he tried to get out of it and couldn't, it be, and he even told Isaacson in a tweet, like Isaacson put this up that, um, that he tweeted to him at some point and said, I'm just going to turn it into X.com. Like it was just like a random, oh, here it is. It's like, um, in the days leading up to his takeover of Twitter and at the end of October, 2022, Musk's moods fluctuated wildly. I quote, I am very excited about finally implementing X.com as it should have been done using Twitter as an accelerant. He texted me out of the blue at three 30 one morning. So again, this is like, it was coming, um, mm -hmm. but it's crazy. I, I don't know. Like I just, I, like I said about previous ones. I just want Twitter to work. Like I right, just want right. my lists and my alerts and it's how I keep up on AI news and information. Like 90% of what I do about like researching and understanding AI comes from, <laughs> you know, Twitter and research papers I find on there and influencers who share all kinds of amazing insights. I just want it to be that, but that's mm. very personal and selfish of me probably like that's, I just want it to work in that way. And I think it's going to become something much bigger and maybe it works maybe it doesn't i hope it's great yeah. but i don't even think the ceo knows what it is yeah for sure it's definitely hard with the public statements to unpack anything that's actually going on one last bit of additional context that may be interesting to people that i've read multiple times in the past as we've heard rumors of x you know one possible precedent or model are several consumer facing apps in china that basically are all-in-one apps like you mess you can message everyone through them communicate make calls but also there's a very strong culture there of being able to trust and use these types of messaging apps for payments for buying things so for certain like identity verification things you might need to do business or to do commerce so i think that is one possible model they're considering here but good luck I probably just described that more clearly than Seriously. they have some. <laughs> so I'm I think not I, trying to. I, I think I started to tweet something and I just deleted it. It was yeah. like, 
if they even have a communications team left at Twitter, which I don't know that they do. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, they needed 24 hours to work with this. Like mm-hmm. that tweet announcing this could go down in the history books and be studied at colleges of how not to communicate something. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just a word salad of stuff. Yeah. It, it's yeah. really bad. So again, I, I don't know. I hope they get it right. I hope they fix it for society's sake. Like it's a valuable tool and system. I love it personally. And I just want it to work. Agreed. So before we wrap this up and, you know, with the audience fully understanding, there are not a lot of details to go on here. Do you have any ideas of how you see AI fitting into this? Because on one hand, we have XAI being a significant AI play based on the people involved in its own right. But it also sounds like AI is just going to be critical to this bigger idea of X. I guess. I mean, that was a, that, of all the things that the CEO statement said, the powered by AI part, I actually mm. laughed at. It's like, do we really, do we really need to say that? Like there's, there's nothing they're going to do that wouldn't be infused with AI. So I just thought it was hilarious that they started the sentence with powered by AI. Um, yeah. I mean, like anything we've said before, there, no software exists three years from now that isn't powered by AI. Like, mm. I mean, maybe, maybe one year from now, I just don't even know why you'd be building software right now. If you weren't infusing AI into it, you're just going to get destroyed. So mm. obviously everything they're going to do is AI powered. And I think like we've talked about before, Elon has like six companies that are powered by AI from SpaceX and Neuralink to, you know, Tesla and whatever else he's got going on. And I think all of that data in some capacity eventually all powers the future stuff. Mm. All right. So for kind of our third major development happening this week, we saw seven major AI companies, Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection AI, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI all agreed to safety commitments proposed by the White House. Now, this is basically the White House offering up specific commitments around safety that these companies have now decided or said that they will follow. And that includes promises to engage in different types of security testing carried out by independent experts. It includes using digital watermarking to identify AI-generated versus human-generated content. It includes testing for bias and discrimination in AI systems and several other safety-related actions. Now, these are simply voluntary commitments publicly announced by these companies and the White House, not any type of formal regulation or legislation. Now, despite that it is getting a lot of attention because of the people involved and the fact is that the highest levels of government that some of these directives or commitments are coming from. So, Paul, how legit is this? Is this meaningful or a PR move, a little bit of both? I actually think it's more meaningful than a PR move, honestly. Like, when when you go through the eight things, I I think a lot of these labs have been working on all eight of these things anyway. Um, Some of them, I'm not sure how practical they are. Like, the watermarking is always talked about and yet... Every research thing I've seen says that's easily manipulated. Like, you know, it's not hard to um, do away with that in different capacities. But the reason I think it's legitimate is there's a lot of things that are not going to be said publicly uh, that are going to be tied to these supposed voluntary commitments, such as government funding for initiatives, projects with these companies. Uh, they're all going to be facing some ongoing massive legal disputes that they could have the, use the government in their corner um, on. And so I would imagine there's some promises being made, wink, wink, like, you know, mm. these cases with the DOJ or heading to the Supreme Court might be nice if 
you know, you played nice with the government. So yeah, voluntarily commit to these things, but if you don't do them, then maybe we won't be as helpful in your future endeavors. And then the other thing is just the U.S. interest in winning the AI battle. So mm. I think more and more it's becoming apparent. There's a article that I just read this morning, The Atlantic. We'll talk about it in next week's episode because I have to process this one a little bit more. Mm. Um, but they were asking Sam Altman about, you know, the U.S. versus China. And uh, I think sometimes in article quotes, if you know what to look for, there's some really telling things that are said by the people at OpenAI and some other executives. But OpenAI executives in particular seem mm. to like to tip their hand a bit with their quotes. And I just, I feel like it's, the US government is extremely aware of the importance of not falling behind in generative AI and in AGI and in super intelligence. And I think they need these organizations that are at the table right now to be a part of that. And I think there's going to be a lot of things we'll read about 20 years from now of deals that were made that allowed for the continued advancements of this technology mm. and some of the things that would have been hindrances to that happening sort of just magically go away with some agreements. And this is the kind of thing that you would publicly do with here's some commitments we're going to make and it's voluntary, but it's not really voluntary. And the other thing is uh, Biden already said, like, there's going to be more executive action still. And he's, mm. they're still saying summer. So sometime in the next month and a half or whatever, what summer ends September 20th at two months, there's supposedly going to be some more executive actions related to this stuff. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's PR. I, I really think that they're actually trying to find ways to accelerate the innovation, uh, but putting guardrails in place to try and put some protections. So this is just one of many actions that the U.S. government has been taking recently to kind of further understand and establish guardrails around AI. We've talked about several others on previous episodes. For people that kind of haven't been following as closely along with the U.S. government's actions, do you see the U.S. getting involved in creating sweeping AI legislation like the EU's AI Act? Or is this something, are the, their priorities here a little different from how you see it? It, it's always hard because next year's an election year and you always have to look at who's in office, who controls Congress um, to be able to project out like what's really going to happen. I would say in the current climate and based on the urgency to win with AI, um, as we talked about, I don't think they're going to put anything crazy restrictive in place. I think there will be legislation. I think there will be um, things specifically around like obvious things like copyright and, um, you know, misuse that's stuff that's covered under the FTC laws, like we've talked about, but I, I just don't see the U S and the current administration. I think that they view it more as a competitive advantage than they do a threat to the U S and I think they're very realistic about the threats it's going to present, the challenges it's going to present, the you know, with bias and synthetic content being spread and all these things, copyright infringement, like they're aware of all of that, but I think that they're going to prioritize it. And again, like, I don't want this to become like some crazy like, conspiracy theory. Just go back the last 20 some years and look at the research DARPA has done, the Defense mm. Advanced Research Projects Agency for the U.S. government, billions of dollars into AI. The government didn't wake up to AI in November like the rest of the business world did. The government has been putting billions into AI for 20 years, longer than that, probably. They're fully aware of the power and potential of AI, and I don't see them 
stopping because I, like I said, I think they view this as a more of a competitive advantage in many areas than they do a threat and they, they just can't stop it. Like it, it would not be wise for them to do that. Yeah. DARPA is a really good example because people sometimes don't realize, yeah, not at all conspiracy. We, you know, for decades, technologies like GPS or the internet were first developed for government Sorry. and or yeah, military applications, defense applications, or just government uh, lab applications, and then became commercially available. So it doesn't seem like Neuralink, AI is any yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Musk's company. That was DARPA yeah. technology. Yeah. I mean, go, go read Pentagon's brain. Like if this is, the, if this, I know this isn't like all business and marketing, you know, related, but if this thread fascinates you, like it does me and Mike, like Mike and I sit around and have beers and talk about this stuff all the time. Mm. Um, go read Pentagon's brain by Annie Jacobson. Like it'll, it'll blow your mind. And that mm. book was written seven years ago. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just like, I would love Pentagon's brain too. Like I would love to know <laughs> what Annie knows yeah. about what has been going on in the last 10 years. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a fascinating thing, but yeah, we'll switch gears and get back to marketing and business talk now. <laughs> so to wrap this up, I'm curious, what kind of weight do you give to the criticisms people are making about these commitments? So a bunch of people have said, look, these don't really go nearly far enough to hold any of these players accountable. You know, they allude to what you alluded to that yeah. it's not a great I mean, it's not necessarily uh, a transparent or open look if you're having these closed door meetings where presumably other conversations are happening. Do you, is there weight to these criticisms at all? Yeah, they're viable. I mean, it's uh, it's natural to be skeptical of what the government's doing and whether or not this matters and whether these voluntary commitments mean anything. Uh, but I, I, I just, it's le the government has a lot of leverage here and, mm -hmm. and it would be... Um, I, I think it would be misguided to assume they're not using it. So I just, I, I really don't think they're voluntary. I, I think these are commitments that are going to be required under law and regulations that are to come. And they got them to agree to them in advance in exchange for something. There is considerate legal term. There's consideration somewhere in here where you're going to voluntarily agree to this. This is what we're going to work on with legislation and, and future laws, but you do it now and in exchange X. We will do this for you, hmm. or you will have the opportunity for that. It's how this stuff works. So I just assume it, it I would just say it's more meaningful than voluntary. This is, is my assumption right now. All right, let's dive into a ton of different rapid fire topics. Now, first up comes several updates from OpenAI about various products and, and initiatives they have going on. So first, they just rolled out what they're calling custom instructions for chat GPT. So custom instructions essentially give you the ability to set preferences for how chat GPT responds to you. And then these instructions are saved across all your future conversations. So this kind of removes the friction of having to start each conversation with ChatGPT from scratch, you know, like by having to always remind it of key details about you and the context of your work or your query. So here are some quick examples of how you might use custom instructions that might be relevant to different kind of personas or people using it. So for instance, if you were a teacher using ChatGPT for lesson planning, classroom-related work, what have you, you could create custom instructions that remind ChatGPT what grade you teach, say you teach the third grade, and it will remember that every time you start a chat. 
If you're using ChatGPT for writing, you can use custom instructions to remind it to apply the same voice and style each time you have it write it for you. So you're writing one instruction and it is carried through all these future chats so you don't have to write it again or remind ChatGPT. One other example, in any field, you could use custom reminders to remind ChatGPT of your level of expertise in a field. So it can give you the appropriate level of explanation each time you're asking about a topic. So it might not bore you with the basics if you happen to know about a certain topic really, really well. Now, right now, custom instructions are in beta for ChatGPT Plus users only, but OpenAI has said they'll be rolling it out to all users soon. So, Paul, how big a deal is this feature? Yeah, I think until people experiment with it and assess how the outputs vary, it's hard to tell. Mm. It definitely appears to be a prelude to more personalized chat experiences, which is something Sam Altman has said is specifically a direction they're going. So I do see this as probably a building block for GPT 4.5 or GPT 5. The thing that immediately jumped out to me was I, I do wonder how it affects the quality of the outputs because it's, I assume, going to use these instructions on every prompt. Mm-hmm. And so is it going to actually start giving you less variability in the outputs and it's going to start just writing as the third grade teacher, you know, the kind of thing you want? And I don't know if that would affect how good they are. So I was thinking about someone like me where I don't use it the same every time. Like yeah. I have dozens of use cases I'll test it on. And so Mm -hmm. I I don't know that I feel like if I set the instructions that it may actually lessen the value of GPT-4 to me because I want it to be diverse in how it responds based on what my use case is. Mm -hmm. And so that when I went in to turn it on or to check it, that actually kind of confirmed for me that I'm probably not going to use this because in essence, you're just giving it a pre-prompt. And so if you haven't done it yet, you just go into you know, your profile at the bottom left, um, to make sure it's turned on and beta features. Again, you need to be a chat GPT plus user, I think, to have mm-hmm. access to this. Yeah. <clears throat> so you turn it on and then it gives you two questions. So the first is, what would you like chat GPT to know about you to provide better responses? And it gives you thought starters. Where are you based? What do you do for work? What are your hobbies and interests? What subjects can you talk about for hours? What are some goals you have? So again, it's just kind of understanding you but how that plays out in the outputs, nobody seems to know, and they didn't provide a ton of guidance. And then the second question I actually found more intriguing as a prelude to whatever the next model is, how would you like chat GPT to respond? Uh, and then again, the thought starters are how formal or casual should chat GPT be? How long or short should responses generally be? How do you want to be addressed? And the, the one that was the kicker for mm-hmm. me should ChatGPT have opinions on topics or remain neutral? That is the one that Sam has specifically addressed mm-hmm. when talking about, do they allow right-wing, left-wing stuff in there and like trying to set guardrails. And he said, in the future, you will pick your own guardrails in essence. If you want it to be right-wing or left-wing or in the middle, whatever, you're going to be able to tell it, like, I, I, I like this. This is what I believe kind of thing. So my question becomes, like, if you and I were to go in there and set these parameters, these thought starters, and then give similar prompts, like, is it just going to be totally different than what we would have gotten before? Right. So with and without these instructions, how different are the outputs going to be? Because I feel like it could start just narrowing the value of the tool if it always answers within these instructions. But I have no idea. I haven't seen anything yet. 
because it's brand new, yeah. if anyone has tested outputs with and without these custom instructions. So it's, I don't know, just something to check out. Yeah, definitely a good reminder with a lot of the things we discuss here, uh, new features, new tools, a lot of experimentation is needed. Just because there's a new feature doesn't mean it's actually necessarily going to benefit you. Yeah, I, I probably won't use it. I don't have time right now to run a bunch of tests. I'll wait for Ethan Mollick to like run the experiments <laughs> <Right>. for us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, if we see cool experiments, we hear feedback on it, we'll certainly share it uh, here on the podcast. Or if you, you know, race forward and, and do some of this testing, let us know, you know, yeah. reach out and ping us and let us know how it's going. So OpenAI also announced that they're doubling the number of messages that ChatGPT Plus customers can send to GPT-4. So the new limit is 50 messages every three hours. It used to be 25. Now, you know, pretty simple, basic, straightforward update here, but important. And I'm curious, Paul, this begs kind of a bigger question. Between being able to use GPT-4 and value adds like code interpreter, should marketers be paying for a ChatGPT Plus subscription? I mean, I've said before on this show, I think it's the greatest value in software history. Like, I, I don't know, mm. I don't know why you wouldn't be paying 20 bucks a month for it. Like mm. literally one simple prompt could save you 20 bucks a month in time. So yeah, I mean, even if you have Jasper or writer or whatever, I would still be paying the 20 bucks a month. Now, if you have a team of 600 marketers, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be having everyone have it unless you had specific use cases for it. But as someone like me or like you, who's constantly just testing this and experiment with use cases, oh, can I save time on podcast scripting? Or can I save time on summarizing this research article that takes me 40 minutes to read, but I'm not mm. sure if it's worth the 40 minutes. Let me throw it in there and get a summary real quick and then decide if I'm going to spend the 40 minutes on it. I do that like five times a week. So I, I mean, I could literally just be saving three, four, five hours a week just using summarization. Yeah. Well, of course I'm going to pay the 20 bucks for it. So I think once you have a case for how you're going to use it or why you're testing it, it, it would be crazy to me to not be paying the 20 bucks to test it. Yeah. And we've talked about before with the addition of things like Code Interpreter, it really does seem like a no brainer. And I realize not everyone's made of money, but I mentioned this because, you know, there are some, there's some pushback often from marketers saying, well, why would I pay 20 bucks for something where I can get something comparable for free. And it's a valid question, but this is just one of the easiest cost-effective, most cost-effective ways to be experimenting with one of the leading tools out there that can do many, many things. Yeah, I think that, in, and in their case, that's another argument to do it, Mike, is if you want to know where this stuff's going, yeah. OpenAI is going to continue leading the way. And so yeah. just to be able to pop in and test code interpreter and be like, oh, that, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's worth it. So if you're, yeah, I mean, if you're a leader in your organization or if you're a marketer trying to stay at the forefront of the stuff, pay the 20 bucks, test the tech out, even if you're not using it in your daily workflows, mm -hmm. um, it, it's worth it to stay at the forefront of this stuff. And it is important to stay on top of it because another open AI topic uh, here is a question that's being raised in a few different circles. Is GPT-4 actually getting dumber? Um, researchers from Stanford and Berkeley recently published a paper claiming that GPT-4 is becoming less capable over time. So they actually evaluated GPT-4 on certain tasks like solving math problems and generating code in kind of highly structured evaluations. And they found that overall, GPT-4 appeared to be getting worse at reasoning-based tasks. However, the paper doesn't identify why GPT-4 might be getting dumber. 
Not to mention, it's possible this is just a totally unintended or unanticipated consequence of other changes to the model. Now, OpenAI has responded to these claims, saying it is looking into this. It has been aware, it is now aware that there could be an issue. Again, this is just one paper. Some have pointed out that the research itself may be flawed. One tweet from a Stanford professor named Arvind Narayanan says that the researchers structured their evaluations in such a way that may have made a decline in performance more likely. As such, their research may be misinterpreted. So there's kind of some competing claims flying around. Paul, have you noticed any of this? What do you make of these claims that GPT-4 might be getting dumber? Yeah, I thought it was... Interesting. I kind of followed it throughout the week. You were seeing these claims pop up. And then there's a, a guy that I think we both follow. It's official Logan K on Twitter. Mm -hmm. He Logan works for OpenAI and he's, I think, like an informal spokesperson in some ways. Like he's one of the most yeah. like vocal and active in the community, engaging with the community. So he's a, a great person to follow. But he tweeted out, just wanted to say generally thank you to everyone reporting their experiences with GPT-4 model performance. Everyone at OpenAI wants the best models that help people do more of what they're excited about. We are actively looking into the reports people shared. And he had had a couple of tweets prior days kind of addressing this. And so the thing that jumped out to me is just what we talked about earlier. They don't know. Like mm. it, they take the reports seriously and they, because it doesn't function like normal software, they're not sure if it's actually getting dumber. So they see this research report, they scan like, well, I don't know, let's go do our own testing. Maybe some guardrails we put in place caused it to get dumber. Maybe some other change, some fine tuning af affected the downstream system. Like, we don't know. We got to go kind of figure it out ourselves, see if we can replicate the, the research. And so as the days went on toward the end of last week, I saw what you were seeing where it's like, it seemed like maybe it was just a flawed research project that was done hmm. and the paper maybe wasn't accurate. But I think, again, it's just a reminder that this stuff is still so new to like humanity, to business, like. They don't know exactly how it works. Yeah. And so stuff like this can pop up and these models, get, maybe they got dumber, maybe they didn't. But if you're, this is another thing that's interesting. If you're relying on the APIs from GPT-4 mm -hmm. for a third-party solution, like you're building applications on top of this that you're selling, what if it is getting dumber? Like what if you've built a company on top of a model mm -hmm. that somehow got dumber and you don't, they don't even know how it happened, more or less you knowing how it happened. And now your product is jeopardized. And this goes back to the enterprise decision of what LLMs do you build on? We don't understand the technology we're building on. You're, you're, you're betting on the future of your organization on models that are like a year old that we, we just don't know. So I don't know. I think it just, all of this to me reinforces how early we are in this technology, how little people really know about how it works or where it's going to take us in the future. And that can be kind of scary, but I think it also is such an opportunity for everyone. Like if you're mm. just starting to listen to this podcast, like you can jump in this stuff right now and in a week or two, like get caught up in certain areas. Um, yeah, I've seen it happen. I've seen people who developed an interest in this stuff three months ago who now know more than me about large language models because they just like just went all in 50 hours a week. That's all they did is like one thing. And you can learn this stuff pretty quick if you develop interests and everybody's trying to figure it out. So I just think it's such an opportunity in your career, whether an entrepreneur or within an organization to help solve this stuff. It's mm. so unknown right now. So one last piece of OpenAI news, they've actually published some updates to their data privacy policies, uh, specifically related to their API, signaling that the company 
does not actually train its models on the inputs and outputs created through using its API, which connects you to GPT-4, GPT-3.5, and some other models. So it seems that OpenAI is being very straightforward in seeming to indicate that you can use and build on top of their API without privacy and security concerns. Um, however, it is really important to note that these policies very clearly state that these kinds of privacy and security considerations, uh, this kind of level of privacy is not does not apply to commercial use of tools like ChatGPT. So, Paul, it sounds like OpenAI is kind of trying to communicate here that they are responding to some of the data privacy concerns, especially among possible enterprise users and customers. Is that how you see this policy update? I mean, it certainly could be part of their strategy to address the growing momentum around open source and Llama mm -hmm. 2 and things like that, because that's going to be the argument around open source is none of this stuff's an issue. So I think they, they have to, I mean, part of it might just be strategically the direction they were going anyway, but it sure seems like with everything else going on and maybe some of the government regulations, things like that, it's just, they, they have to take these steps now to deal with the competitive environment. So moving on to some non-open AI news and developments, um, Popular website building platform Wix just announced something they're calling the AI site generator tool. And the tool does exactly what it says. It uses AI to automatically generate an entire website from scratch based on your prompts. So Wix already has a number of AI features as part of its platform already, which generate things like portions of websites, like AI image generation tools and a tool that writes product descriptions and copy, but this AI site generator goes one step further. It literally generates everything you need for an entire website. And each website that it will generate is actually unique. It's not a template. And you'll be able to use prompts to use this tool to make edits to your website as well. Now, Paul, we've predicted generative AI applications like this being possible. And now we're seeing these predictions come true. Are we entering a new phase of generative AI? Like one where we're kind of going way beyond having AI just write and create art for us? Yeah, for sure. And there's another example we'll talk about toward the end here with rapid fire. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, this is inevitable. Look, again, if this is shocking to people, it's been coming for a while. Uh, there was early versions of this. You can see it with PowerPoint slides, like anywhere where words and images and videos mesh, this is going to happen. I think that, you know, we've talked about this idea that every knowledge worker, every organization that does knowledge work, provides services, consulting, um, you know, marketing services, web development, web design, mm -hmm. you have to be realistic about the future. And so the, the three questions I always advise people is what will we lose? What will we gain and when? So if you are a web design development shop and Wix succeeds at this and it truly can just on the fly build these, or if you're a HubSpot and you have template builders internally, or if you're a firm that builds website templates and sells them for a living, that's part of your revenue, mm. it's done. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not going to need it. Um, so template libraries gone. You're just going to prompt it the kind you want. Um, you can provide, you know, images as inspiration, like we see with runway where you just give it an image and it builds a video off of it. So I, I just feel like the, 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 and when part of this is coming very soon. And so if, if you're doing this kind of work, it's not that it's going to go away completely, 
But I think certainly in the SMB world where they don't want to spend five, 10, 15, mm-hmm. $100,000 on building a website, they're, they're, they will use this in a second. Like there, there's just no reason to pay for that and deal with the challenges of working with outside providers for it. So again, this is coming from someone who owned the marketing agency for 16 years. We did web development work. We mm-hmm. saw this coming five years ago. Um, probably didn't come as fast as I thought it would. But again, once this rolls out and other people emulate the same capabilities, I think it changes the way these things are done and it changes the need for these services and it affects that part of the industry. And like, I, I just don't see how it doesn't, like how it just doesn't transform that. So yeah, I, I think that's just interesting to know. And then the other thing is, I thought that the CEO of Wix, maybe it's their communications team, going back to having a good communications team. I thought the CEO did a really good job of, here's our point of view, here's the vision for this, here's a roadmap of what we are going to do with AI, here's what we already have. Mm. And it's shocking to me how few SaaS CEOs have done that yet. Like I just, I, you know, it's one of the things we always advise, we advise it in our book, find out what their point of view is on AI and I want it coming from the CEO. Like if it's just some director of marketing product or whatever, doesn't matter. Like Mm -hmm. I want the CEO saying, this is what our vision is for building a smarter solution for you, the customer. If it's not coming from the CEO and they're not talking about it in earnings calls, if they're publicly traded or putting out blog posts and videos, if they're private, then they likely are not serious about AI yet. So I think this is a good example of what we need to see. We've seen it with Asana has done a good job of this. Mm -hmm. Another one jumps to mind. uh, Aaron Levy, Levy from Box does a great job with this, like CEO level points of view, vision, roadmap updates. That's where it needs to be coming from. So if you work in the communications department or marketing department, get your CEO talking about this stuff, get, get, get them caring about this stuff. So next up, the Authors Guild, which is America's largest and oldest professional organization for writers, is asking its members to sign an open letter to generative AI leaders. This letter, says the Guild, calls, quote, on the CEOs of OpenAI, Alphabet, Meta, Stability AI, and IBM to compensate writers fairly for the use of copyrighted materials in their generative AI programs. Among other things, we seek to create a licensing solution that will bring money back to writers whose works are used on an ongoing basis. So if you're, you know, somewhat unfamiliar with how a lot of generative AI models are trained, at least ones that use the written word, they are fed tons of data, often scraped from places online. And some of that data, as many lawsuits are now alleging and as letters like this allege, are coming from books, articles, essays, and other written works that are copyrighted by certain authors and or publishers. So with these works being used in AI models, at no point are authors or writers being compensated. We're literally giving up data or having it taken from them without consent to train AI models. So Paul, you yourself have written several books. We co-authored one. How do you as an author view these concerns that the guild has and that writers generally are starting to have about how these models are being trained. Yeah. I mean, well, you've also written a couple books, <laughs> give yourself some credit. I think we have five books between us. Um, <laughs> so I, I signed it, um, you know, start there. I, I think that, um, this is a, it's a sign of where that this will go in the future. 
So you can't go into the existing foundational models and extract this knowledge. If they scrape the content, which they most likely did in many mm -hmm. cases, you, we talked about this last week, I think the machine on learning project that Google's going to run. They don't know how to just go into the model and say, let's get Mike's book out of there. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we, we, we shouldn't have used Mike's book. We're going to take it out. They can't do that. So this is all about like the future foundational models. And I think the future is licensing of data. So if you, again, Twitter shut off their APIs, Reddit's, you know, been trying to avoid people scraping things. Uh, New York Times done doing a deal with OpenAI. I think what you're going to see is all the major data brokers. And if we think of data as content, images, mm -hmm. um, text, video, that is the asset. And so licensing that to these companies that are building these models will solve this issue in the future. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some, maybe the Supreme Court finds that they, you know, GPT-4 in 2022 or 2021 did scrape some illegal data and OpenAI pays a half a billion dollar fine. And that half a billion gets spread out among how many millions of authors are there and everybody gets their $5 and like, okay, we're done. Like that, that takes care of the past. Now in the future, we have things like this, where the guild is trying to say, you are going to license collectively, not individually. You're not going to go to Paul and Mike and everybody else and like say, okay, we want your book and your book and your book. You're going to have this one collective license and it's going to be worth $2 billion, whatever that number is. And then that's going to get spread off amongst all the authors that are part of the guild and everybody's going to get their $22 or whatever it is. Mm. It, it, again, this is, we're just talking theory here, but this one doesn't seem super hard to project out how this plays out. Um, I, again, one, I, I think there's little debate that they probably took stuff they shouldn't have. They, they may win in case, say it was fair use or not. I don't know. We'll see. Let the legal precedents come forward on that. But likely they took things they shouldn't have taken. It's now known they did that. In the future, they're not going to be able to get away with that as quickly or as easily. And there's probably a lot of incentive for them to not do it that way. Therefore, you have to license the content. How the licensing plays out, we don't know. How it gets distributed to the people who created the content, we don't know. Um, there's a great FAQ actually on the Authors Guild we'll put in the show notes that kind of plays this out, how they're thinking about it. And you can tell a lot of this is like theory of here's how we think it could work for everyone to get compensated, but we don't know. We just don't want them doing this again. So yeah, I, I think it'll, there it will positively affect authors in some way, but I don't think mm -hmm. like we're going to be sitting around waiting for our royalty checks to show <laughs> up every six months and, you know. It's not going to be like that. So consulting firm McKinsey announced that it's partnering with AI company Cohere, which makes large language models, uh, in order to provide AI solutions to its enterprise clients. Now, this is the first partnership McKinsey has announced with a large language model company. Um, McKinsey has said it's working with Cohere to build customized solutions to help improve customer engagement and workflow automation for clients. And it added that it's also considering using Cohere to increase its internal efficiency and power its own internal knowledge management system at McKinsey. Now, Paul, this isn't the first time a major consulting firm has partnered with some of these big AI model companies, but why are we seeing this trend? Why are big consulting firms entering into these partnerships specifically for enterprise clients? This plays into the challenge we talked about earlier about knowing which models or companies to build with. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a smart play by uh, McKinsey, by Cohere, 
because realistically you're going to trust your known advisors, consultants, strategists. So McKinsey obviously has a massive book of business and a reputation, a strong reputation. And so it's, it's understandable that big enterprises are going to go to McKinsey and say, what should we be doing with LLMs? And they're going to have solutions baked in. My guess is they will also have Llama 2 solutions, just like Microsoft, like they're going to diversify. It's not like they're exclusive with Cohere, but they're going to make some bets on some of the closed models and some of the open models. And then they're going to build services around it. It's what I would be doing if I still ran a service firm. If I still ran mm -hmm. a consulting firm, you would do deals with, I'd probably do deals with one or two of the closed models directly. I'd probably do deal with one of the leading application companies, and I'd probably have a team dedicated to building open source capabilities for clients that want that too. We did the opposite at my agency back in the day. We bet on HubSpot in 2007. We were HubSpot's first partner and we basically built services around a closed partner. So we did, you know, we value add services to HubSpot solutions. We didn't work with Marketo, Pardot, Eloqua. Like over time, I phased all those other closed applications out because we just bet on HubSpot as the main thing and it worked. Uh, but I don't, I wouldn't do that right now. Like if I was running a consulting firm or an agency, I, there's not a single model or application company that I would bet the future of my consulting firm on because hmm. we just don't know. At that time, I was very confident HubSpot was going to be a major player and a winner in the space. And I was willing to bet my company on them. I, there isn't a company I've met with yet that I would, that I say has this all figured out and is going to remain the leader for the next five years. It's just impossible to know. Hmm. So in some, it's Microsoft news, a couple of big developments. So the company just announced pricing for its AI features that are being added to Microsoft 365. So we've gotten some clarity on essentially Microsoft's Copilot subscription. So Copilot essentially injects AI right into popular Microsoft products like Word, Excel, and Teams. And Microsoft has announced that Copilot will cost an additional $30 per month per user, which according to CNBC, they claim that could raise prices for enterprise customers with, keep in mind, lots of users, lots of seats for each tool, as much as 83% when all is said and done, if they kind of go all in on this additional pricing. Paul, does this pricing make sense to you? Because on one hand, it seems like a huge jump for some companies that rely on this software, but on the other, based on what we know about Copilot, it seems likely to deliver massive productivity gains. As soon as companies figure out how to make the business case for this and understand the impact it's going to have on efficiency and productivity across the organization, and they have plans to implement it, not just turn on 30 bucks a month for more mm -hmm. thousand workers and jump the bill with no plan of how they're going to activate that software, or that technology. But once you have a plan, like let's say you start with the marketing department in a big enterprise and you say, okay, these are the 10 use cases we are going to use Copilot for. We have a business goal. Our KPI is a 30% increase in efficiency across these 10 use cases. Go. Because now it's like a no-brainer. 30 bucks a month is a joke for the mm. value you could create if you have a plan to use the technology. And so I think the adoption may be slower. Like, I don't know that you're going to see just whole enterprises buy and increase their pay up, you know, 83% a month or whatever. All right. But I think if you do it in a smart way by division and you have action plans and you have specific use cases and you have systems in place to monitor the use and to measure the productivity gains, then I, I think over one to two years, why wouldn't you pay this for everyone in the organization? But based on our understanding and all the big enterprises I've talked to, I don't know anybody ready to scale this across the entire organization. 
like right. just, just not ready. I mean, we're, we work really closely with some big marketing organizations and they're just trying to figure it out and they're going to be ahead of most other departments in the company. So, you know, again, HR, legal finance, um, I, I can't see paying that per user because you're just going to have a bunch of unused licenses in essence. Yeah. It all starts with the use cases and the strategy, like we've talked about for yeah. many years now. <laughs> so Microsoft has also announced a version of Bing's AI powered chat. And this version has enhanced security features designed specifically for enterprises. So they're calling this Bing chat enterprise. And they say the tool offers a higher level of data protection for businesses with privacy and security concerns about generative AI tools. Microsoft says that no data about chats with this new tool are saved and the company cannot view your data. Now, this tool is actually going to be free for Microsoft 365 customers, existing customers, and Microsoft also is reportedly going to release a $5 a month standalone version. So, Paul, it certainly seems like the trend here is AI vendors rushing to kind of bake increased security into their products to serve especially enterprise needs. Is that kind of what you're seeing or how you're reading this? Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, as you're talking, this thought popped into my mind of, I wonder at what point do these vendors start paying us for our data? Hmm. So like it's 30 bucks a month standard, but if we're allowed to use this data from your users, then it's $20 a month. Hmm. Um, it's almost like the Twitter mentality of, you know, paying creators to drive ad revenue. And now you get a, a split of the ad revenue. So what we've always talked about, like, you know, we are the product where it's our data that they're, you know, building on top of like at some point do they pay us for the data. I don't know. I'm just like, again, thinking out loud here, but yeah, definitely. I mean, it's privacy security. Uh, it's kind of been a recurring theme of like three of the topics we've talked about today. Yeah. So Bloomberg just broke a story that Apple is secretly working on AI tools, as well as building and using an internal chatbot nicknamed Apple GPT. Now, there's not a lot of details at the moment, but it sounds like as part of these efforts that Apple is now using an in-house generative AI system called Ajax to develop a large language model that powers Apple GPT. Now, Paul, I know you're a longtime Apple watcher. This seems long overdue. I mean, Apple uses plenty of AI in its products and has done plenty of interesting things there, but we've seen them largely sit on the sidelines when it comes to this big generative AI race. Um, can you break this down for us, kind of where you see them being at right now? Yeah, they, I mean, they have more AI in their products than probably any planet or any company on the planet. I mean, the whole iPhone is powered by AI, all the apps, like everything right. it does operationally. So they have incredible AI capabilities and researchers. They, they just don't release things before they're ready. I think that's like the biggest thing with Apple is they're perfectionists uh, mm -hmm. largely. And this isn't traditional software as we've talked about a couple of times today. So the user experience is definitely at risk if you put a product out that doesn't work all the time or most of the time or they can't fix with a quick patch. So that's just not like Apple to let go of control. At the same time, as we've said on the show before, to me, the dream of this and maybe the the thing that takes over the market is if Surrey works. Mm. If you build an actual intelligent assistant that can not only answer your questions accurately every time, but can take actions on your behalf, it's game over with their mm -hmm. distribution of the iPhone. And that would be, I would not be surprised at all if you hear nothing from them for, you know, till September or maybe even until, you know, next spring when they do the developer conference, where that is. And then all of a sudden they just drop you know, Surrey 2.0 on us or Surrey GPT or whatever it is. 
and the thing changes everything. Mm-hmm. Like that, I have to imagine there are dozens of people with an Apple working on that exact thing right now. Um, because to me, it might, it might be the biggest thing they could build at the moment. So in other big tech news, Google is now testing an AI tool that actually generates news stories. And this was revealed in some reporting by the New York Times. This tool is known internally at Google by the name Genesis, and it can generate news content based on information about current events. It's actively being pitched to outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and News Corp, which owns like Fox and a bunch of other media properties. A Google spokesperson said that this tool is not intended to replace human journalists and cannot replace human journalists. They were very, very stark about that. Now, Paul, do you believe the commentary that tools like this aren't meant to replace journalists? And do you even think it's likely that news organizations are going to adopt this type of thing? I'm really intrigued what exactly it is that's different about it than Hmm. what we're seeing right now. Like I was trying to think about that when I was reading the article about what, what could be specifically related to news here that isn't already available with these other tools. Um, I I think it's assuming people are more naive than they are to say this doesn't replace jobs or to go Mm -hmm. in trying to pretend like the tech isn't going to replace jobs. Um, it's going to like, it's just like, I think at some point we have to just accept that and stop pretending like that isn't the outcome or at least a partial outcome of what this technology does. So I just, I think it's offensive, honestly, to like journalists that you're going to show up and present this technology and pretend like it's not going to have some effect on them. So what that is and how significant it is and how close we are to that happening, uh, I have no idea, but I think we need to be realistic here about where this technology is going and it's going to affect people. And one thing you've repeatedly said in the past is, you know, look at incentives, especially business models. And, you know, journalism is not the world's most healthy business model these days. So there is direct incentive to cut costs, do more with less, uh, potentially automate some of this work. All right, we're going to wrap up here with a few updates under what I would file under jaw-dropping AI technology. And the first is a stunning series of AI-generated videos, which have just come out and shown us this kind of brave new frontier in generative AI. So a company called Fable has released what it's calling Showrunner AI Technology, which allows you to generate new episodes of TV shows from scratch. And this is all part of a project that it's calling The Simulation, sort of creepily. (laughs) Um, The technology has been on display, and we link to this in the show notes, on their Vimeo channel where the company has released full episodes generated totally by AI of new content of the hit show South Park. So each episode is a completely new creation. It features a cohesive plot and the exact visuals and character voices from the show. It is functionally a full episode of television created by AI. Now, Fable actually trained AI on hundreds of creative assets from the show, which allowed it to generate episodes based on high-level prompts, like give me a South Park episode about A, B, or C. These results are wild. And if you've seen South Park at all, you should definitely check these out because they're pretty uncanny. Um, What were your thoughts when you first saw this, Paul? It was pretty wild. 
So it is research only. They have no rights to the IP of South Park. There's no apparent relationship with South Park or the creators of South Park. That was rumored for a while because this tech mm -hmm. has been known for a little while. So uh, as of right now, it doesn't appear there's any connection there. Um, it's pretty remarkable. I actually have, I built this into my uh, opening keynote at Macon this week. So I have an example of this. I think the, we'll, we'll probably have to dive into this one more, maybe as a main topic down the road, but they're, they're not trying to just build TV shows that is part of it, but it, it's, they're trying to build AGI, artificial general intelligence. Their basic premise is when you chat with ChatGPT or Inflection Pi or Anthropic Claude 2, whatever it is, it, the chatbot pops into existence and then it goes out of existence. They don't want it to go out of existence. They want to create AI simulations that live on even when you turn your computer off and continue learning from the world around them. And they want it to, in essence, be the Truman Show. They want you to raise AGIs. That they, they want me or Mike or whomever to be able to go in, create simulations, create little worlds, create little AI characters. And those AI characters continue to move around the world and exist even when we're not with them. And they learn and they grow and they develop intelligence. They're creating a sandbox for intelligence. It is crazy. Like... I, I don't know. I was having trouble over the weekend processing this one and thinking about this. Um, but they want to create reality shows for AI where we watch hmm. them grow up and become super intelligent. I guess <laughs> topic for another time. Like I can't rapid fire. I can't get into all of it on this, but uh, it's wild. Part of the value though of these conversations <laughs> is you could read a story about this and be like, wow, that's pretty wild. A South Park AI episode, but it's so much more beneath the surface of what Always these are, is. what's going on. There's always some crazier story <laughs> both beneath the surface. So another interesting development is popular AI video and audio editing software, Descript, which we rely on here at the Institute, has released a new feature called Eye Contact. Eye Contact uses AI, quote, to subtly adjust your gaze in video so it appears you're looking directly into the camera even when you're reading something off camera. So that means you could easily be looking, you know, to the side, each side, looking at a script, slides, um, notes, while still creating an authentic connection with viewers through AI essentially correcting your eye contact with the camera. Now, Paul, this is a pretty good example of the advanced innovation we're seeing in what I would classify as very affordable AI tools. Mm -hmm. So what should marketers be paying attention to here and thinking about? This fits under the law of uneven AI distribution. Just because mm. the tech exists doesn't mean you'll accept what you have to give up to do it. Like, I, mm -hmm. this one's weird to me. <laughs> like, I, it's a cool tech. I love the script. I don't know that we'll use it. Like, yeah. I, don't, I just don't know I would use it. I was explaining this to like, my family was over Friday night for a picnic in our yard and I was explaining this tech and they were all creeped out. Yeah. And I was like, well, you probably, you know, it's going to be on all social media platforms, like anywhere you use, like this mm -hmm. is not going to be a hard thing to replicate. Um. I don't know. I, I, this is one that's going to take a little while for me to get used to. I think it's kind of creepy. Yeah, I'll have to try it out because I could see maybe it's not like this, but it could be a bit unnerving. I, you know, I don't think humans stare at each other 100% they're no. talking. So. It's natural to not to look away. Yeah. Like yeah. when I think I look away, it's just, right. oh, so it'd be really weird. Yeah. Well, so we'll see if this one backfires, but it is out there if you want to try it. People will use it, I'm sure. Yep. All right. Last but not least, we're 
looking at this week featuring some exciting new AI tech that we're experimenting with called Playground AI. Now, we have no affiliation with them uh, as of today. Playground AI is just an image creation and editing tool that allows you to create really great images and easily do professional-grade image editing using only text prompts. So this is just something we discovered that we thought was worth talking about because, Paul, you've been playing around with the tool recently. Can you kind of walk us through why it's worth paying attention to? Yeah, I'd check it out. Um, just like quick thoughts. What it does is it gives you access to five different image generation models. So there's Playground V1, Stable Diffusion 1.5, Stable Diffusion 2.1, Stable Diffusion XL, and then Dolly 2. Mm. And so you can go in and just build images like anything else. But the one thing I really liked is they have these pre-trained filters. So you have like saturated space, lush illumination, warm box, cinematic, a masterpiece, black and white. And so whatever your prompt is, you can ap apply this and it, it basically layers a pre-prompt to give you that kind of output. And so I experimented with it for my keynote for Makeon and it, it was pretty cool. So yeah, just like a fun tool. I don't even think I'm paying for it. I think it's just a free tool and um, gives you a chance to experiment in a little bit more ways with these different tools and add some different variables that maybe you wouldn't know to add yourself. So cool tech, just check it out. Yeah, that's awesome. And that assistive feature with those filters can be really helpful. I know using, on my end, using some of the image generation software, you see these amazing results people get, but it really takes some trial and error. Okay. I don't know I don't exactly how to results. do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's so, exactly it. It's like, I'm not a, I'm not an advanced designer. Like, I, I don't know how to explain what I want. And all I know, and Dolly is like, okay, digital art, illustration, like these boring mm -hmm. samples. And this thing is like 70 words of additional prompt once you pick <laughs> these things. Like, okay, I couldn't do that. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, we've covered quite a lot of ground this episode. As always, thanks for shedding some light on some of the complex topics going on in AI. Uh, we really appreciate the time and the insights. And thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully we will be seeing a lot of you in Cleveland this week for Macon. If you want to grab a last minute ticket and you're still around, that's uh, Macon.ai, M-A-I-C-O-N.ai. And I think we have AI Pod 100 still set up. If you grab a last minute ticket or a flight to Cleveland, we'd love to see you. Uh, otherwise, We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.